Well, it's good to be here at Revival Winter Edition. It feels nice being out in the, uh, the crisp mountain air, don't you think? You know, you could be up here doing a lot of different things, but you're up here doing camp with a church, thinking about godly things. This is important stuff, and I want you to think that um, you could be up here doing a lot of different things. Some people go up to the mountains to train. One thing that you could do in the mountains to train is to be a cross-country runner. Do we have any cross-country freaks in here? Anybody? Okay, all right, all right, all right. So I call you a freak because you're a freak of nature, right? That's what I mean. I say that in a nice way because uh, you do things that I couldn't do. I would have to work a long time before I could be, I don't know, as physically fit as you people. But you know why you come up into the mountains to train, right, runners? It's because high elevation, a little harder to run, you kind of get out of breath more, and then you come down to sea level and things get a little bit easier. There's other sports that you could practice up here in the mountains, like rock climbing. Nick Schumacher's not here, but we would say he's our uh, resident rock climber here in True North, and some of you rock climb with him. And I just want you to think there are things that you could do at a weekend camp out in the mountains to train for life down below. Now, I want you to think that what we do here is not that much different than that. Now, it's not the same physical exercise, although some of you are going to ski and snowboard tomorrow, but what I want you to think about what this weekend is, and the reason you have a Bible in your hand, and the reason you got pens, and the reason you got a worksheet is because I want you to think of this time, especially during the sermons, as training for what happens down the mountain. This is a training time because I want you to think you could be athlete and you could be a lot of things, but what are you really? I want you to stop and take a big picture look at your life and ask yourself the question, what are you? What do you do? What's your life about? If you were to describe yourself to other people, what are you? Well, one of the most important words in the New Testament to describe the people who associate with Jesus and do what he says is the word disciple. That's why you all have uh, shirts, and so these are crew necks, right, that have the word disciple of Christ on the bottom because we are going to study this weekend what does it mean to be a disciple because Jesus is going to show us that that is not just something you do occasionally, but that becomes who you are. And if we don't take time like this to occasionally train for what it looks like to live the Christian life down when we're down the mountain, then I think we miss a great opportunity. So what we're going to do tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday morning is we're going to study one book of the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. And you know how I usually reference a lot of different verses when I preach and you write some references down? We're going to do that, but tonight and tomorrow and Sunday morning, I will never take you outside of the Gospel of Matthew. We're only going to look at verses in this one book. And the reason for that isn't because there's not good things outside of it, but there is so much that the author of this book, Matthew, has to tell you and me about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to stay there all night. And I want you to look at Matthew chapter 16. This is just a good place to start. We'll jump around to a lot of different verses here. But I want you to have a Bible. That's why um, I need everyone to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, go grab one right now. I don't want you to use your phone. Just use a Bible. This is going to be helpful because we're just staying in one place tonight, just kind of turning the page left and right just a little bit. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. The reason we're starting here is because Jesus has just said something big about himself. He has just explained to people who he is. And even Peter and some of the disciples, they start to recognize who Jesus is. And right after that, he tells them, check this out. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It says, then Jesus told his disciples. Okay, so he's talking to this group of people that are his followers, the people that associate with him. He says this, if anyone would come after me, which just is another way of saying, if anyone would follow me, if you really want to associate with me, if you, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to, you know, follow God. You could use a lot of different terms to describe that, right? But he says, if anyone wants to be serious in a relationship with me, he says, let him, number one, deny himself. Number two, take up his cross. And number three, follow me. Okay? Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple for real, and look who he's talking to. He's talking to disciples. If you're going to be his disciple, there's three things at least that he asks you. And there's more than that. But these are just three from this one text. He says, you need to deny yourself. So you don't get to be your own boss anymore if you're going to be a disciple of Christ. It's one or the other. 
If you're going to be a disciple of Christ and you think, well, I'll never deny myself. I'll follow my heart. I'll do what I want to do with my life. Then Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. Then he says, you better take up your cross. That means you need to be willing to have your life end whenever Jesus wants it to end. You're going to be willing to have your life, even the decisions and the control that you think you have over your life, that ends when you take up your cross, which is a figurative way of saying prepare to die. And then he says, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That's at the core of what it looks like to be a disciple. And I want to kind of talk about this word disciple, very important in the Bible. We can write some Greek down if you want to try your Greek letters. I'll give you some English letters right next to it. But the word for disciple that shows up a lot in the Gospel of Matthew is easy to remember because it kind of sounds like Matthew, okay? Mathetas, right? Mathetas. It means disciple, right? It's always translated disciple. And then you want a definition, this is good to write down in your paper. It's a person who follows Christ. We're going to see that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to use this word. Matthew's going to use this word. Other people are going to use this word to say, hey, if you're a follower of Christ, which is hard for you to do because you can't follow him. Because where did he go, right? A follower of Christ. So if Jesus is with the Father in heaven, do you have to like search them out? Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? This is an interesting question. Well, we're going to talk about what that looks like. So I want to start by looking at a very simple thing. You might know this. This has to do with the phrase deny himself. But I want you to look at this. The first thing, right, that you can write down, disciples are followers. That's what this sermon title is. That's what we're going to talk about. What does it mean to follow Christ? Right? If you are a disciple, just like you could be a cross-country runner, just like you could be a rock climber, if that thing in your life becomes your identity, which Jesus says if you're a disciple, it has to. Well, then the first thing is you're a follower. And what does that look like? Well, the first thing is it looks like repentance. So after you write that, that phrase down, repent of your sins, that's the first command if you're going to be a follower of Christ. Repent of your sins, which there's a lot of Bible language stuffed into that really short phrase. It's only four words, but repent and sin needs a lot of explanation, right? Because we're in Matthew chapter 16. Once you write that down, turn to the left. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3. We're going to see someone that's uh, talking, even before Jesus ever talks, who's going to explain the way to be a disciple. A guy named John the Baptist. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3 once you write that down. Repent of your sins. That's the first step. That means to deny yourself, that you're not the boss anymore, that you're going to be willing to say no to the sins, that even the sins that you like to do. Very interesting. Matthew chapter 3, look at it, verse 2. You can start in verse 1, actually. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's what he preached. This is in quotations. Here's the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a summary statement of what John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does it mean to repent? Well, it means to turn away. It means that you're living in a certain way in your life that Jesus calls everyone to repent. Whether you're a scribe or a Pharisee, which were the most religious people, whether you were a prostitute or a tax collector, which all those people are mentioned in this, in this book. By the way, uh, those two categories of people are mentioned often. Scribes and Pharisees, the ultra-religious people, and then another phrase that's used, prostitutes and tax collectors, which was like the low end of society. You've got the worst sinners, and Jesus calls them to repent, and John calls them to repent, and in fact, many of them do. And then you've got the scribes and Pharisees, and guess what? Many of them don't repent. And he says, whether you think of yourself as a prostitute and a tax collector, whether your sin is really all that bad and outward, or you're one of those kind of people that is like a Pharisee or a scribe, really religious. You, you graduated with your Timothy Award in Juana. You memorized a lot of verses. You're a really smart kid. And everyone here thinks that you've got it all together as a Christian. He says, you need to repent. Scribe or Pharisee or tax collector or prostitute. Look, drop down to verse 7. He says, in verse 7, he says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, this is John still speaking, speaking about John, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? That's like saying to the most righteous people that you know, or the, the most holy looking people, it's like if John the Baptist yelled at them and said, you're like a snake that someone poured water into your hole and you come slithering to the surface. Who told you to get away from your in impending doom? 
That, that's what it would be like. Whoa. Why is he saying this? Look what he says next. Next phrase. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So that's kind of bringing an analogy in here. When the Bible uses the phrase bearing fruit, we're not super familiar with that because our fruit, uh, we just go pick up at the store. We don't see the whole process, but you know how the process works, right? There's like seeds and there's ground and there's sunlight and there's water and there's a lot of time. And then what happens? Now fruit or any produce shows up. He's saying, okay, if you're a Sadducee, if you're a Pharisee, if you're a religious righteous person, do you know what you need? Your life needs to start bearing the fruit of a repentant life, right? So the, the first initial call is you need to repent. And then you know what John the Baptist says to you who say that you've repented? Okay, you claim that you've repented. Bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Does your life really show it? Because you haven't repented if your life isn't repentant, obviously, right? If there's no fruit of repentance, then how can you say, oh, I turned away from my sin? So, oh, great, is there any evidence of that? No. Well, then you didn't turn away from your sin, that's what he's saying. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Look at the next verse. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. My, my, my dad's a Christian. My mom's a Christian. Don't say that. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Now he's going back to the tree and fruit analogy, right? He says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like that is very, very clear language from John the Baptist that Jesus will repeat more than anybody else in the Bible. Jesus will talk about the threat of hell. And he's saying, if there is no fruit of repentance in your life, you are like a tree that will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If you never repent of your sins, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. It doesn't matter how much you think you know about God. If you never repent of your sins, you are like a tree that is about to get cut down because there's no fruit. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, which is just an outward sign. But there's one who's coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? It means John says, look, I'm doing a ceremony. That doesn't make any of you right, though. Right? It's just a demonstration that you're, you want to repent. Okay, But there's going to be someone who's going to baptize you or place you into one of two things. The Holy Spirit, for some of you. And then others of you, he's going to place you into fire. What does that mean? That means hell. So he says someone's going to come along who's going to put you in the Holy Spirit. Disciples, saved, Christians. And he'll also, some of you, put you in the fire. That means to be damned, condemned, sent to hell. He said, That's the person who's coming. And Jesus shows up right after this. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's so clear. What's John saying? Jesus is going to come along, and he's going to separate two different kinds of people. And according to John, what's the difference between those people? Who bore fruit in keeping with repentance and who didn't? Not who made a profession of faith at revival and who didn't. Not... Who grew up in a Christian family and who didn't? That's not the criteria. The criteria he's very clearly saying is who really repented of their sin. That, that's the start of all this. Look at a couple of verses down in, in chapter 4. If you're like, well, that's uh, you know, John's message, but is that really Jesus' message? Look what Jesus preaches in verse uh, 17 of chapter 4. Look at it. Matthew 4, 17. And from that time... Jesus began to preach saying, God loves you so much. And he just, he just loves you so much. He just loves you so much. And uh, he's cool with whatever you do. Or, you know, just as long as you try a little bit, God will understand and accept you. Or, hey, all you got to do is just try to be a nice person. Just treat others the way you want to be treated. And then God will think you're okay. What does Jesus say? It's the same thing John says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right. We talked about the word repentance. Didn't talk about that phrase. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? All throughout the gospel of Matthew, we're going to see a, a scene that's painted. And it's painted in a lot of different passages. And here's the scene. There is a kingdom that's coming. And when the kingdom comes, there's going to be a king who separates people. We already saw here, we see the people who bear fruit and people who don't. We see the wheat and the chaff. And then we're going to see the sheep and the goats. We're going to see the wheat 
and the weeds. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's going to show you there's two kinds of people. We like to think that there's three kinds of people. We like to think that there's the really bad people, the people who are trying, and the people who are doing well, right? And we always usually put ourselves in that second category. Like, we're trying, right? But there are people who really do well. There are people who really repent. But I don't know. I don't know if I really am going to do that. What does Jesus do? What does Matthew do? What does John do? It's like two, people, two categories. You're one or the other. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Super important. That's the step that many of us miss. We don't repent of our sins. Repent means to turn. Right? You can't repent of your sins until you identify what is my sin. Sin means when we break God's law. It means when we not just break God's clear laws, but when we fall short of doing the things that he tells us to do. Right? He tells you to honor your father and mother. Right? That's a pretty easy one, right? except it's not. Because if you fall short of doing that, if you do anything less than honoring them, sin. Or especially if you disobey that and you dishonor them, wow, sin. Now we're all in the sinful category. He says, don't bear false witness. He says, don't covet what your neighbor has. Right? We all are guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. You are guilty of looking at something that someone has and saying, I want that. And I don't want them to have that. I want their popularity. I want their stuff. I, I want that relationship. We're all guilty of that envy. And God's word says, well, then that's our sin. And we need to repent, confess, be done with it. That's the first step. The second step uh, comes in Matthew chapter 16. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Let's look forward in this gospel. We were already in Matthew 16, so we're getting back there. This is what happened right before. Remember when I said that Peter said something important about Jesus? Jesus was asking questions, and Peter said something important. We're going to see that right here. Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, which was in the north of where he was, he asked his disciples. Do you like how this word disciple always shows up? He's always talking to his disciples, his followers. He asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So Son of Man is a title that comes from the book of Daniel that Jesus has already used about himself. So what he's asking is, who do people say that I am? What, what, what are people saying about me? And they give answers. Like Herod in Matthew 14 thought that Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated because he's all freaked out. Uh, there's people who thought he was Jeremiah. And why Jeremiah? Well, because he was a preacher in the Old Testament. Some people thought he was Elijah reincarnated. They didn't know, right? Who is this guy? I, people say a lot of different things about Jesus. But then, of course, Jesus is not so concerned about the news and what people say about him. He's more concerned about what you think about him. So then he directs it to the disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? That's a very important question that you need to answer, too. Who do you think that Jesus is? Right? I know that sounds really elementary and simple. And a lot of this is simple and elementary tonight. But it is a very important question. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you think he was a wise teacher who uh, kind of got over his skis a little bit and claimed a little too much? and got killed by the Romans? Do you think he was uh, a misguided, uh, psychedelic prophet who experimented with drugs to have a spiritual experience? Do you think he was a, a Jewish rabbi that was misunderstood by his followers? Uh, do you think he was a figment of these disciples' imagination? Who do you say, Jesus? Like, what do you think about him? Right? And if you had to answer that question on a test, or if I asked you and you had to say it out loud, I just wonder, what kind of things would you say about Jesus? And then I would ask you, okay, great. A lot of you would say what Peter says here, but the question is, does your life look like you believe this? Look what Peter says. He said, but who do you say that? Simon Peter, this is verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who I think you are. So let's break that down. The Christ means the, the Messiah or the Savior of Israel, the one who will be followed. That means David's son. So that means king. Christ means king. It means Savior. It means a lot of things. And then also the son of the living God. That means you have all authority and all power, right? Because you're the son of the living God. That's who I think you are. Okay. Now, if that's who you think Jesus is, then are you following him? Because he told you to repent, right? Because like if you think that's really who he is, a lot of us have like some cognitive dissonance here. We think, oh yeah, he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. 
Well, but he told you to repent, though. Have you done that? Oh, well, not yet. Well, may, maybe one day. It's like, well, there's some, there's some problems there. So the second thing, what's the big thing here? It's to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Like, that's the recognition that Peter makes. That's the recognition you need to make. And then you need to think, okay, if that's really true, if he's really the Christ, which means the Savior, if he's really the Son of the living God, the Lord, like the, the total boss of everything, and in the Gospel of Matthew, he's also presented as the judge, right? You know when people say, um, you know, only God can judge me, right? Well, there's some truth to that, right? Only God can judge them. But usually people say that to you or to, to somebody else that has offended them in a way to say like, you know, you're judging me harshly, but God won't judge me as harshly as you, right? That's usually what people mean by that. That's the funny part about that statement, right? Only God can judge you. You want to tell the person like, no, 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 like, you don't want that. You don't want that. Like, you're right, but you're saying something that you don't want. You don't want God to be your judge because God has seen every secret thing. He has seen all the bad that's mixed in with the good that you've done, right? He's seen the bad motives. He's seen the bad heart. He's seen the bad words that come under your breath that nobody has heard. He sees the, the bad thoughts that you've had. He's seen the, the thoughts that you've had that, that are like violent and that are gruesome about other people, the, the ways you've wanted to hurt people perhaps in your mind. Some of us have done that. Maybe he's seen all the, the sexual sin that nobody else has ever seen. It's like you don't want him to be your judge. But he's the Lord and he tells you to repent and then he's going to very clearly promise that if you're in the category of people that is his disciple that repents, that your sins will not be judged. Like that alone should make all of us say, I want to swing into that category. Whatever I need to do to have God overlook my sins, I need to do whatever that is. I need to believe whatever that is. I need to say whatever that is. Whatever it is, right? You, know, you need to write a blank check in your mind and say, I will do whatever is necessary to have my sins forgiven. And so many of us walk around thinking our sins are forgiven, and we've never dealt with what Jesus says. Because he's the one that's going to forgive them, not your me or your parents or, or your own conscience, right? So many of us live in sin. Some of us live with like an aching feeling of being uneasy and we don't know where it comes from. And perhaps I would want to encourage you tonight, perhaps it's that you are in sin and you're not right with God. And maybe you don't even know that yet, but maybe that's what it is. Or perhaps you know that it's there and you push it away and you push it down and you don't want to deal with it. Right? Encourage you tonight. Tonight is the night to recognize who Jesus is. Tonight is the night to repent of your sins. There's no reason for you to wait on that. The next thing we're going to see, we've got a lot to say here, uh, that Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross daily and follow me. Here's what that looks like now. It looks like leaving everything behind to follow Christ. Leaving everything behind. And some of you will throw a flag and say, well, but like, you know, I'll still go to school, I'll still be on my sports team, I'll still basically do all the things that I did before. I would tell you, don't be so sure about that. Don't be so sure about that. For some of you, perhaps, right? but others of you, if you were to leave everything behind to follow Christ, and a lot of that is figuratively speaking, but you're really leaving some things behind. It's just you're leaving immaterial things behind. Some of you will have to leave material things behind. There's certain clothes that some of you have that you can't have anymore. There's certain hobbies some of you have that you can't have anymore if you really left everything behind. There's certain sports that some of you would say, I can't play these sports anymore because I can't do the things for God that I want to do and keep playing these sports. There are things that some of you would be called to leave behind. And all of us are different. We all have different things God calls us to leave behind. But let's start here. Let's start in Matthew chapter 8. I want to show you some people who thought they wanted to become disciples. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. It's very interesting here. There's people, in fact, a scribe, right, which was one of the righteous people, who comes up to Jesus and thinks, yeah, I want to, I want to be a part of that. I want to follow Jesus. Perhaps he's seen the miracles. Like, we're skipping all around the book, and what we're missing is all the miracles Jesus does and all the amazing teaching he has. Like, we're skipping the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're studying the whole, you know, year at, at True North. We're really leaving a lot of that out because we study that in a lot of depth. But 
these people, like this scribe, perhaps heard the Sermon on the Mount. This doesn't take place too far after that. Maybe he saw him heal this leper or, or heal the centurion servant, and he, and he sees all these things. He heals many right before this. But look at verse 18. This is Matthew 8, 18. Everyone check it out in your Bibles. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Right. So where was he? He's on one side of this Sea of Galilee, he says, let's go around all these people, right? And, and you can imagine he kind of has been teaching and helping and doing things. And right before he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law, so this is probably in the city of Capernaum at the top of the Sea of Galilee. So maybe he's like, let's, let's, let's get away from here. Too big of a crowd, right? We're not able to do what we need to do. We're not able to heal. We're not able to preach the way we need to preach. Too much pressure here. Let's, let's go around. So you can imagine Jesus starts walking, and as he's walking, his disciples are with him, and there's people all around, right? Now look what happens next. Verse 19. And a scribe came up to him and said, which is already interesting, right? A scribe. He's just said so many bad things about the scribes and Pharisees. If this scribe wants to be a disciple, we would all say, Hooray. like, this is amazing, It'd be like if a, if a person started to come to church and they're like really self-righteous and you don't think they have any hope and then they come to church. You'd be like, yes, this person wants to be a disciple. This person's interested. The scribe came up to Jesus and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow. You see it? That is what he says. I'm not tricking you. Sometimes when I say it emphatically, you think I'm tricking you. I'm not tricking you. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That is like... One of the strongest statements in this book so far of desire to follow Jesus. Look what he says next. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he basically just said, you might be homeless, or I'm homeless at least. So are you sure you want to follow me? Right, because like if someone came up to you and said, hey, I want to be a disciple. I want to be a Christian. What's your first, if you're a disciple, what's your first reaction? Amazing. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for you to say this. Ama- Let's get you signed up. Look what Jesus says. He says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. So these two animals that are not exactly like really amazing, powerful animals, but they have places to go burrow their head. Or they, they have places to go sleep at night that are the same place every night. And that's the idea. It's not that Jesus never had a roof over his head. It's that he didn't have a singular place to be. He didn't have a home, right? Like like you have a home, some of you. You have places that you go back to, right? Unless you live in hotel to hotel or some of you maybe do that. But most of you have a home. You have a room, right? Maybe you share it, but whatever. At least you still have have a home, right? If I said, what's your address? Where can I send you, you know, something in the mail? Just about all of you could give me an address, Jesus is saying, oh, you're a scribe. That's amazing. You have such great books in your house, scrolls in your house. You've got a lot of things. Do you realize that you cannot stay in one place if you're going to be my follower? Because at that time, if you were really going to follow Jesus, what would you do? You would travel all around. So he says, you just told me you wanted to be a disciple. But let me just bring this thing up that might kind of, I don't know, make you not want to do it. But it's a reality check. He's not threatening him. He's not saying like, no, you can't be my disciple. He's just saying, hey, this is what it's going to look like for you. No address anymore. You're going to have to live out of the trailer, so to speak. You're going to be in you know, van life. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be traveling all around. Uh, he walks away. Another of the disciples. So it's interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are a group of 12 people that are called the twelve. And then beyond that, there's other followers that are called disciples. And even this shows you that not every time the word disciple is used in the Gospel of Matthew, it's talking about like legit, saved, fully committed people. Sometimes it's just people who follow him for a little bit. Right? So some of you are disciples with a small D, not a capital D, because it's like, yeah, I follow, I come to church, I do the church things, but not like, I'm not like in, in. Right? So there's some people in this instance, who followed him and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father, right? Which looked like perhaps this guy's dad was dying. So to bury your father in the ancient world looked like more than just putting him in the ground. It looked like he was sick and you needed to stay there for six months, eight months, a year, uh, do the funeral, get the household in order. 
right, work out the property. Because if this guy is saying this, he's probably the firstborn son. So he's the one who has to deal with the inheritance and all that stuff. So I will follow you, but in two years. Just like so many of you think, I'll follow God, but like after I'm done with college. Give me a little bit of time. And he said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The spiritually dead to bury the physically dead, their own physically dead. Because someone else can deal with the inheritance. If you're not there, if you die tomorrow, the inheritance will still be met out. Like That's all going to work out. But if you don't follow me, there's people that are not going to be one. There's other disciples that are not going to be made. If you say, I'm going to put this off. And so many of you, it's so funny. You think like, and no offense, but some of us think so selfishly about our discipleship. We think, I'll follow Christ later. I'll follow Christ when I'm in college. When you don't know, are there people at your high school that need to get saved? And they're not going to get saved until you get saved first? Until you start following Christ? And you're going to put it off? You, let the dead bury their own dead. But God's got work for you. If you're here this weekend, if you feel the conviction of God's spirit, and you know I need to become a disciple, then I can tell you with confidence, God has work for you to do. And it's time this weekend to become a disciple, to start following with your whole life for the first time. Leave everything behind. So one thing that you can write down, letter A, got three subpoints here for you on this third point. Um, I want you to d- discern, figure out why many aren't willing to follow. Right? These guys have their reasons, right? Everybody who doesn't follow, they have their reasons, one or another. And once you write that down, let's write down this next verse, and we'll turn to it. Matthew chapter 19. Let's turn to the right in our Gospel of Matthew. I could have told you, just bring like a little tiny Gospel of Matthew. You didn't even need your whole Bible this weekend. You just need one like little book, 28 chapters. Uh, Even in the DBR, what are we reading? Matthew 14. So we're like all in the same place, right? So once you write that down, turn to Matthew chapter 19, and I want to show you another person who like looks like the perfect potential disciple. Matthew chapter 19, start in verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, turn there, look at verse 16. Amazing that we have another person that Jesus says, are you really sure you want to be a disciple? And this guy has different reasons. So we'll, we'll look at his reasons. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. It's funny, right after children are allowed to come to Jesus. And Jesus tells the disciples, you need to have a better idea about these children. Let them come to me. They want to be with me? Great. I'll accept them. Right after that, another person strolls up and wants Jesus' attention. Not a child this time. Not a little kid. Not an innocent person. You know, not a young one. Not someone who has nothing to offer. Not someone who just trusts. But a a person who's kind of got life figured out. Right? And it's so funny. Like, okay, if you think that you are more likely to become a disciple when you're 25, you are stupid. Like, you're stupid. If you think you're more likely, do you know what you'll be when you're 25? If you keep walking down the path you're walking down, if you don't want to be a disciple, who are you going to be when you're 25? You're going to have a job. And some of you are going to be married. Some of you are going to be on your own. And do you think you're going to be more likely to say, yes, I want to give all this up to follow Jesus when you have a more stuff, a more reputation, and like, you think you'll do it then? Like, that's stupid, right? No offense, but that's stupid. Think about it. it, it you will have more to give up. Like, now is the best time. Like, yesterday was the best time. When, when's the best time to become a disciple? Like, last year, right? Just before. Because you want to be the 25-year-old? You want to be the 29-year-old? You want to be the 32-year-old? executive. You want to be that rich guy? You want to be that successful girl? Okay, look at this guy. That's this guy. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What things should I do? Like, what do I need to add on? Like, I've got all this good stuff I've done. What, what thing should I do that God will look at me and say, you're good, you go to heaven? He doesn't say, what should I give up to go to heaven? He just says, what good thing should I add in my life? to do. And Jesus said, look at verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. And if you would enter life, well, then keep the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he lists half of the Ten Commandments, and then he throws in there Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just a very overarching how to treat people. That's a commandment of God, right? So he says, great, do that. And in verse 20, the young man said to him, the 25-year-old, the 32-year-old, whatever he was, successful guy who had kind of accomplished things in life, who was the person that you think you want to be with the success that you think you want to have. He said, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Right? Like, I'm good. I've done, if it's just like kind of trying to be a good person, like, I've, I've done that. Like, I'm good. I went to Christian school. I, I, I did the, the Christian thing. Jesus said, okay, well, then if you would be perfect, which remember, what is what does Ma- Matthew record Jesus saying in Matthew 5.20? Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 5.48, 5, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the same book. So Matthew wants us to read this in context. right? You want to be like God? You want to be a, a real legit disciple? Okay, here's what you need to do, man. Uh, go sell what you possess. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He doesn't say you'll get saved if you give your money away. Do you notice that? He says, oh, you will be blessed by God. You'll have treasure in heaven. But that's what you need to do because this guy who has rental properties, this guy who has supercars, this guy who has what you think you want, right? He says, see, here's the problem. As a disciple, like, I don't want you to have all that because, again, at this early stage, you had to travel around. And he doesn't say... Jesus could have said, here's what you should do. Sell what you have, then create a war chest where you could live off of that. You could become a little traveling missionary. You could sustain yourself for five years with all the assets you have. But just do like a slow burn. Like slowly put off your assets so that, you know, you'll be able to live on that. He says, give it all up. Tear it away. Like zero dollars in the bank account. Radical. And he says, you'll have treasure in heaven. God will see that and he'll reward that. And then come and follow me. Because ultimately, you couldn't follow Jesus with the assets that this guy had. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, right? like really downcast. He was really sad. Right? Perhaps he was hoping that was the one thing Jesus wouldn't say. Right? I'll give up other things, but not, not that. Oh, I worked so hard for that, though. Oh, right? God wouldn't want you to give up, I don't know, the popularity that you've earned over time. Oh, maybe he will, though. Oh, God wouldn't want you to give up the sport that you play because it's taking you away from church. Well, maybe, you work so hard at that, though. Maybe he would. I don't know. He went away very sorrowful, for he had great possessions, right? And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a person Rich, will, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Huh. Who, who did he say, like, it's easy for them to go to heaven? The scene right above, children, right? People who don't have stuff. People who are more willing to trust God. Easier for them to go to heaven. Harder for rich people to go to heaven. Harder for a guy like a rich young ruler. Hard for a, you know, a 29-year-old bachelor who has multiple rental properties in Miami and in L.A. And he has a big house in Texas. And he you know, has an apartment in Manhattan. Right? Harder for him to get saved. And if you think, like, that's what I'm striving for. I want that stuff. It's like, then you're a fool. Because you think you'll become a Christian then? You won't become a Christian then. Because you'll be good. Because you'll think you work the system. Because you'll deceive yourself at that point and say, man, so good that I didn't listen you know, in youth group. So good I didn't do that. Because like, oh, what a bummer my life would be now. I'd be like oh, serving in a kid's ministry or I'd be, you know, helping high schoolers. Oh, what a terrible life that would be, right? right? That's what you might say. 29-year-old uh, successful person. Only with difficulty will a person who has a lot of stuff, a lot of reputation, a lot of assets, very difficult for that person to get saved. And I can tell you from experience, I've not seen that many older, rich people get saved. It is so, so rare. It happens. He's not saying it doesn't happen. It's just really rare. You know what's not rare? You know what's common? You know what I see happen every single year? I see high schoolers get really saved. And they don't have as much stuff to give up, right? 
Like some of you are, are chasing the very thing that will keep you from getting saved at the point that you think in your imagination that that's when you'll start following Christ. Matthew 21, Jesus goes on, tells this parable two sons. I'll read it for you. Matthew 21, verse 28. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. So this story, right, Jesus is saying, okay, it's like this. Like a a guy has two sons and one of the sons is rebellious. And he says, hey, go work in the field today. He says, I'm not going to do it. But then like he feels bad he walks away, and after he feels bad for a little bit, he feels kind of convicted. He says, okay, no, 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 I, I, I will go do the right thing, right? So initial negative response, right? Okay, look at the next son. And he went to the other son and said the same thing, right? Go work in the field. And he answered, I will go, sir, right? Like even though go respectful, right? Like, yes, sir, right? Yeah, I'll do that. But did not go. Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father, right? Well, which do you think? The one who said, no, I won't do it, but then later changed his mind and said, yes, I will do it. Or the one who says, yep, 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 sir, I got it, and then doesn't go. Who did the will of his father, right? The first one, who rejected him initially, right? Because he's the one who actually did. They said, well, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. So this group of people, they're like that second son. Who said, yeah, 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 sir, we're, we're in it, we're in it, we're Christians, we're doing the right thing, we're, we want to follow you. But they never repent, they never recognize Jesus as Lord, they never leave their stuff behind. But then the, the, the like morally worse people in the society who end up saying, I didn't want Jesus, but, but now I do they're going to get saved before the self-righteous people do. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. So he lived a very strict life. And you didn't believe him. You said, that guy's a cultist. That guy's strict. That guy's weird. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Even the fact that he's like more righteous than them, they knew he was righteous. And they knew they weren't righteous. And even John's life was a living rebuke to their sin, and they're like, oh, I need to change, and they wanted to repent. He says, but the tax collectors and prostitutes, they believed in him, but you did not believe in him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe in him. Right? When, when John talked about Jesus and then promised, oh, there's going to be someone who's going to do all these things, and then Jesus comes along the scene and does miracles. He says, even when you saw the miracles, you didn't believe it. And that's this particular group of people. And maybe you're not like one of them, and I hope you're not. Right? But there are some of you who are, are fake disciples. Right? You, you, you are saying, yes, I'll be a disciple, but you're not really a disciple. He calls those people out, and he says, you got to be willing to leave behind your self-righteousness too, your reputation. Some of you, it's like, you know you're not saved. You know you need to repent. But if you did, you would have to admit to a bunch of people, I was a faker before. I, I was self-deceived. And some of you aren't willing to swallow that pill. Some of you aren't willing to tell people, I had it wrong before, right? Um, You know, please take my word for this. Uh, I've been in this church. I've been in this youth group. I've been around this church, right? Um, I, I know a lot of people who were never willing to admit that they weren't saved, and then it came out later that they weren't. And I've seen a lot of other people admit that they weren't saved and it shocked everybody it's like really you but but you were like preaching campus lunches you were like a worship leader you were all these things you were you were like what and then like they said i wasn't saved and then all of a sudden boom now they're saved now they're walking and i think what would what would have happened to that girl what would have happened to that guy if they would have held on to their self-righteousness, they would have walked away. Or they'd still be a faker and more entrenched in their deception. But they repented. It's, it's so good to think about people. Like Even some of your leaders, even me, like I, that's what my story was. I told people I was saved for a while, and I wasn't. right. And that was one of the hardest things to do. Like I didn't want to have to tell my small group I wasn't saved. I was a pastor's kid, right? And I, I, it wasn't until I was 14 
that I was actually really a disciple and I actually really repented. Didn't just say, oh yeah, I'll repent, but I actually repented. That was a little bit embarrassing to tell my small group you know, at the end of ninth grade year after you know, saying, yeah, let's invite people to church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not saved. Oh, but now I am. That was a little bit embarrassing, right? But now, it you, you, doesn't matter to you, right? You don't think twice about it. The leaders don't think twice. It's over, and it was worth it. My point is, this is a good story for some of us who say, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir, I'm a disciple, but you're really not. Discern why many aren't willing to follow. And then another thing, that might be for the people who uh, are really, you know, self-righteous, but in Matthew chapter 12, he tells another story. I'll read this one real quick. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Show us a miracle. Do a trick. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that? Well, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the only sign that you're going to see. I will rise from the dead, is what he's saying. Now, what group of people is this? This is the group of people Right? Why are some not willing to follow? This is the group of people who say, I just need more evidence. I need more evidence. Show me more evidence. Can I just tell you, if you're one of those people that has been presented with a lot of evidence, and you're saying, I need more evidence. I need a sign. I need more proof. You don't need a sign. You don't need a proof. You don't need more of that. What you need to do is submit to God. Like he says, an evil and adulterous generation. He says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And remember Jonah? Like, he didn't even want them to get saved. He, like, came into town and, like, sheep is like, yeah, God's going to judge you. And they're like, wait, 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 what? Say that again? God's going to, like, in a, a few days, he'll bring judgment if you don't repent. Are you serious? Oh, man. They told the king, like, everyone mourned, and they repented. And Jonah's like, oh, dang it, I hope that didn't work, you know, because he didn't like them. Jesus says, those people will rise up at the judgment and just say, like, for these people who saw the signs of Jesus and were at the time of Jesus, like, how did you not get it? We got it, and this dude preached to us, and he didn't even like us. And, and we got it. And, but you saw all these things. You heard all these reports. But you still need a sign, right? Some of us are, it's not that we need more evidence. It's that we're unwilling to believe no matter what evidence is put in front of our face. Some of us are like that. Not all of us, but some of us are like that. And I hope you know even these verses, I'm not trying to say all of you are like all of these, right? But many of us, right? That's why the word many of us, not all of us. Discern why many of us aren't willing to follow. We're going to talk about being a disciple. That's where this all starts. Speaking of being a disciple, turn to Matthew 4, more on discipleship. This is when the first disciples are called. I want you to see some good responses here. That's what the next couple verses we'll look at are about. People who did respond, who did start following. Matthew 4, Verse 18, which we actually read Matthew 4, 17 before, remember? It was the message of Jesus, which was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as he's preaching that message, while walking by the sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I have a new job for you. You're going to be evangelists. You're going to be disciples who make more disciples, right? He'll explain more of that later. But you notice how he doesn't explain it here? <laughs> they don't get much. It's just Jesus is preaching, repent. And then he walks by these two guys and said, follow me. He doesn't even say, put down the nets. He just says, follow me. And immediately, do you see verse, what is it? Verse number 20, immediately. That's the word in Greek, which means right now, right? Some words mean at some time later. Immediately means as he said that, it, it directly after, immediately they left their nets and followed him. If you're a fisherman, what does it mean to immediately leave your nets? It's like leaving your homework all out on your desk. It's like leaving your sports practice, like you just take off your shin guards and you just leave them at practice. It's just, it, it, it's like, I don't know, just leave everything. They don't even bring it with them. They don't even pack it up and put it away. It's just they left their nets immediately and started following him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boats was Zebedee, their father. Which, by the way, something you should know about James and John, particularly John. John lives 
so long. He lives to almost 100 AD, which is 70 years after all this happened. So how old was John? John was not in his 30s. John was your age. John was working for his daddy right here at a summer job, right? He's, he's mending his nets with his dad. He's, in the, you know, he, he's mowing the lawn with his dad, basically, right? He's a teenager. They were mending their nets, so they weren't fishing. They were, they were fixing their nets. And immediately, they left the boat, and their father followed him. Right? So there are people who leave everything behind. And I guess here's what I want you to write down, letter B. I want you to give up anything that keeps you from following. Give up anything that keeps you from following. If your friendships keep you from following, give them up. If your dating relationship keeps you from following, give it up. If the sins that you're committing keep you from following, which I can assure you they do, give them up. If your phone is keeping you from following, give that up. If your iPad's keeping you from following, if your Chromebook, which it keeps everyone from doing everything, right? Um, nobody likes Chromebooks. That's an easy give up, right? Just give it to your parents. Right? It's a school Chromebook, whatever. Don't throw it away. Don't smash it, right, right? Don't, I mean, unless you need to, right? But be willing to give up anything that keeps you from following Christ. Now, that's Matthew 4. Look at Matthew 9. Jesus calls another disciple. You're going to recognize this guy's name because he's the author of this book. Matthew 9 different kind of disciple, though, because those disciples, just to be honest, fishermen, right, they're, they're kind of low class, but they're like, they're like the good old boys, you know? And the society's not looking at them being like, oh, what morally terrible people. Like, they're, they're you know, they went to Sabbath school. They were, they were workers, you know, blue-collar-like people. They, they're salt of the earth. People would look at them and say, yeah, those are, those are, those are the good old boys, right? We know them. Uh, not this guy, though. This guy's a tax collector. Verse 9. This is Matthew 9, 9. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. So uh, what he's doing is sitting at the tax booth. What they would do is it was like the toll road. So you know the toll road? Uh, they used to make you stop at the toll road and throw in, like, quarters, right? Because there was a time when, you know, cameras and license plates and little beepers, like, it didn't all work like it does now. Right now it's just that little you know, RFID chip that you stick on your, uh, the inside, unless you're poor and you don't do toll road, right? Uh, we don't do the toll road very often in my family because I'm like, I don't want to do it. Um, those of you who live in like San Juan and San Clemente, you probably do the toll road. If you live in RSM, you definitely use the toll road. Just not to get to church, but just to get everywhere else, right? Um, if you're rich, you use the toll road. So what they used to do back then is there were places where like were the main places to walk. And then every time you'd walk past it, there'd be a tax collector there and saying, five bucks right? And you would pay the toll. So Matthew wasn't a tax collector like banging down people's doors. Matthew was a tax collector who sat at the booth, wealthy, you know, I just can I don't know what he was like, but I can just imagine him just sitting there just raking in cash all day, all day. What's the price? Whatever I want it to be, right? What's the toll? Imagine, you know, it's like a big line of people, just money, 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 money. Every person that stopped, more money, more money, more money. So Matthew was rich. We know that because he has a big house that we're going to learn about in a second. But Jesus goes up to him, like, do you know a gig that you don't want to walk away from? Being a tax collector at a toll booth, right? That's kind of something that, like, let's use our, our, our brains here. You leave that, money stops coming in. Right? So, right? See, see, it's like quitting your job that's really lucrative. It's like, you don't want to leave this job. But Jesus passes by. He sees Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And what did he do? He rose and followed him. So what did he leave behind? All of his money, all of his stuff, his job, his future. He left that all behind. Because whatever Jesus was to him, and who knows at that point. I don't know how much Jesus meant to, to Matthew at that point. But it was enough for him to follow Next, some of us have a problem with this because uh, when I say leave anything behind that keeps you from following Jesus, you're like, but the stuff that I would have to leave behind, I'm not willing to leave behind. I want you to see this couple verses that Jesus says in Matthew 13. You're getting a workout tonight, right? You're, you're writing some things down. You're turning in Matthew, but I've kept my promise, right? And nothing outside the gospel, Matthew. So you've been able to see all these. Matthew chapter 13, look at verse 44. So Jesus is telling parables at this point, which are stories to prove a point, 
There's stories that people who are uninterested, they don't care. But people who are interested lean in and think, well, what is he talking about? This parable is an interesting one. He says uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. So uh, there was a law back then that if you bought a piece of property, you could have whatever was on that property, right? Because the owner will sell the property for whatever price. You know, if there's cows, if there's sheep, and the owner wants to sell those to you, great. He can sell them to you. This guy finds something super valuable, treasure hidden in a field, right? He, I don't know how he comes across it, but somehow, you know, he uses a little metal detector or whatever, you know, or his spidey senses. And all of a sudden, boom, he's like, he finds this treasure in a field. This happened a lot, actually. This was not an uncommon thing. And he covered it up, right? He's like, I found something here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it quiet for a little bit, right? He says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. When people find out what it really means to be a disciple, it's like finding treasure hidden in the field. Not everyone understands it, but once you understand this is what it means, it's like, what do you feel when you find, you know, $100,000 in, you know, a backpack in your attic, like, I don't know, a little bit freaked out, but like, I, excited, I don't know. What if, what if you found, like, I don't know, gold bars, like, in the wall? I don't know, maybe you're, you're plumber or whatever, I don't know, <laughs> you're not those things, so. I don't know, but you find, like, all this gold, like, and you know, like, this is, like, $50 million worth of gold. This is, like, tens of million dollars worth of gold. Right? What do you go home and tell your parents? Like, we should kind of, we should buy that house. Like, oh, but it's like a million. It's like one point two million. Like, I looked at it on Zillow. Like, it's all gone. Like, we will do anything it takes to buy that house. Do you know why? You buy that house, you could pay for it in cash <laughs> a year later, right? Because you could. It, it, it's like finding gold, right? You can sell it and whatever. Um, Sorry, I'm getting really off topic, right? We're just talking about gold now. Um, a man found in a field. He covers up. And then in his joy, what does he do? He goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Would you sell everything that you had? Would you sell your computer? Would you sell all that stuff if what it meant was you could have a house that had $50 million worth of gold bars in the wall and you pay $1.2 million for it? I think you would sell everything. I think your parents would sell everything. I think they would even sell their house if they were convinced that it was worth it. That's the concept. If you're convinced that it's worth it, you'll be willing to give up anything. Look at the next verse. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what it means to become a Christian, right? You step back and uh, let us see, you appraise it. It's like when someone goes to a house and they want to see how much it's worth, you stand around it, you look at it, you think, what is it worth? How much does it cost? What should it cost me? You appraise. I want you this weekend, if you've never done it before, I want you to appraise the true value of following. Like, let's think about what it really benefits you to follow because Jesus said, it's like finding treasure and in your joy, you're willing to sell everything. Not begrudgingly, like here's the thing. Some of us think I don't want to become a disciple because giving up stuff, like it would be, it would be like tearing out you know, my thumb to take away my sin. I would hate it. It just sounds torturous, right? He says, no, no, no. If you really realize how good it is to be a disciple, how much better it is for you, for your eternity, for your life here and now, which is something that we don't talk about very much, we'll talk about it tomorrow, right? If you realized how valuable it was to follow Christ, every last one of you would become a disciple, right? It's just the people that don't see how valuable it is. It's just the people that never stop and appraise it. It's people who don't really see what we're dealing with here. That's what we want to do this weekend, basically, right? I want you to just appraise what it's going to be to follow Jesus. And back to our starting passage, we'll, we'll end here tonight. Back to Matthew chapter 16, right after he said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me, right? Those three component parts. He says, 
This might be the, the most important verse of all that we've read. This is Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Right? You want to hang on to your life? You want to hang on to control? You want to hang on to your future? You want to hang on to the right to say yes or no to God? You want to hang on to your life? Like, great. You will lose it. God will take it away. Right? 100% guaranteed. You want to save your life? You want to hang on to it? You'll lose it. But, look what he says next, verse 25. But whoever loses his life, you let go? Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Right? So, this is the trade-off. You give up your life. You give up control. The, the, the picture I like to think of, it's like you're hanging on. Right? Some of you are hanging on so tight. I don't want to give control to God. I don't want to do what God says because that might mean, you know, I might have to give up this friendship. I might have to give up this relationship. I might have to give up this sport. I might have to give up. I can't let go. I can't let go, right? Whoever would try to save his life, hang on to it, will have all that lost. But whoever gives it up, whoever loses his life, for my sake, for Jesus, not just giving up your stuff because you're lazy or because, you know, you don't want a relationship or you don't want to work, do that sport. No, no, this is like giving it up for Jesus Christ. Okay, well then you'll find it. Find what? What's it? Your life. You'll find true life. You'll find what it really means to live. Then he says, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you get everything you want, if you have everything you ever want, if you have every relationship, if you have every experience, what would it profit you? Is it really better to have all the things you aspire to be and it be the person you aspire to be in your mind right now? If in the end, what does it say? If you gain the whole world and forfeits his soul. Like that is a trick that is being played on so many of us right now. It's like we think I can gain the whole world. And by the way, can I tell you, you will never gain the whole world. You at best, will gain a fractional, little, tiny slice of the world, right? And then you'll lose your soul if you say, I won't repent, I won't recognize Jesus, I, I won't leave everything behind, I'm going to hang on. Right? That's why you know, so often, right, if you've been to True North a long time, or maybe this is your first couple things, like, you're going to hear us talk about, you need to repent of your sins, you need to give it up, you need to become a disciple. This is ultimately why. It's not because we're mean or judgmental. It's not because we don't like you. It's not because we're mad at you, right? And I hope you don't hear me saying it that way. It's because I don't want you to lose your life. And I know so many people who've lost their life. I know so many people that have been to this same camp in this same building who faked it and they're gone. And people who pursued the world and they're gone. And there's no sign of turning back at that point. And some of them think they cheated the system. Some of them think, I'm gaining the world. I'm flying my planes. I'm owning my businesses. I'm being with whoever I want to be with. And they think they've cheated the system. But this is still true. They think they're gaining the world, but they will lose their soul. What does it profit you to do that? Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done with the choices you've made. Right? You've got your life ahead of you, presumably. You've got a path to walk down. And so many of you think, well, maybe I'll become a Christian at the end to kind of save it, right? That's not how this works. People typically do not become Christians on their deathbed. They become Christians, if you look at the stats, it's like 75% of people become Christians before the age of 18. That means that for the people who become Christians later, it's only 25% of all people who profess to be born-again Christians, only 25% of those people say, that happened after I was 18. It's just interesting, right? Gaining the whole world does not help you does not help you become a disciple. It just hurts you. So my, my point in all this is out of love for you, and I hope, I hope that you understand that even if you don't feel that, even if you don't hear that, um, just know you can be saved. You can become a disciple tonight. And so many of you need to become disciples tonight. You don't need to wait till tomorrow. 
You don't need to wait till worship night, right? No offense, worship team. You don't need to wait till then. You just need to decide tonight. Like, yes, I'm going to do this, right? I have some questions tonight uh, for application questions that are going to be along the lines of, like, I, t- tonight's the night I'm just going to decide. I'm going to be a disciple, right? I, I need to figure out all what that means later. I'm just willing to follow him. I'm convinced. I'm making a decision. I'm saying, whatever it costs me when I get home, whatever, I'll deal with the consequences later. I'm going to decide tonight I'm going to repent. And maybe as you talk to a leader or you talk to another trusted Christian, right, maybe you confess your sin to them, right, as you repent, right? You're going to tell them, hey, this is what I need to give up to God. And then ultimately, confessing it to them didn't solve the problem, right? So they're going to tell you, hey, let's talk to God. I want you to confess that to God. I don't want you to tell God that you want to be a disciple. And I want you to tell God to please forgive you for your sin based on what Jesus did. And then tell God, I- I'm willing to follow you and, and help me follow you because I need your help because I can't do it on my own. That's what it means to become a disciple, right? Nothing tricky about that. I'm going to pray for you right now. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to do one more song. I'm going to pray for you to make that choice tonight if you have not already. Let's pray. God, we recognize with a lot of sobriety tonight that gaining the world does not solve our problems. In fact, it makes it harder to become disciples pray for every student tonight who is in that camp of people who uh, doesn't want to be a disciple. I pray that some of them have even changed their mind uh, during this sermon and are, are going to be willing to do whatever it takes to become a disciple and make whatever commitments or whatever repentance needs to take place. God, we know that you're telling the truth. We believe Jesus is the Christ. We believe that he's our Lord. And those of us who are followers of you, we confess that so many times we fall short of what you call us to do. pray that you would Make us stronger as we train this weekend for discipleship. As we'll talk about more of that tomorrow and the next day, I just I, I pray that some of us tonight would make the decision to become disciples. Um, we know that it's better to become disciples than anything else, and we, I just pray that you would show your grace to us tonight by accepting us, not based on our works, but based on what Jesus has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.